Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org. The voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, coming out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com, for more of Walter's music. Thank you, Devine Dial, for holding WPVMFM together there in Asheville on Wall Street. We appreciate it. If you would like to uh, connect with me, Nave, at JamesNave.com, that's my email. Nave is spelled N A V E. And we're sponsored by the Imaginative Storm Writing Project. If you'd like to improve your writing, imaginativestorm.com. So today I have a new friend, a fellow I met by way of an introduction through my next door neighbor, Janet Byrne. And Janet said, Nave, you should talk to Peter Himmelman. He's an interesting guy. I reached out to Peter and he said, yes, we got on a phone call and or a Zoom call, which we're doing right now. And off we went. And I said, gee whiz, Peter, how about an interview? And he said, absolutely. So, Peter, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. Nave, thank you. Thank you for that introduction. Your voice is, you know, it's getting me in the mood for, for dancing, for speaking, for the whole, the whole works. I'm glad you're in the mood because let's dive right in. So the first thing I would like to do with you, when I was on the conversation with you, I enjoyed your range and your depth and all of the thoughts that you brought to our conversation. I know you're a seasoned musician. You do a, an, a great deal of things online. You communicate on multiple levels. I know that you probably are a philosopher. You might not identify yourself as a professional level philosopher, but I sense you you know a fair amount about philosophy. And you also have spent a lot of time thinking about theological matters. So. I wish you would start by just telling me about what's going on in your psychology and your mind right now, today. What are you thinking about? Well, I'm glad that you specified it and brought it down to <laughs> down to earth. I didn't. I wasn't aware of where I could start today, and per, perhaps for the last several weeks. And when we spoke, which was probably a couple of weeks ago for the very first time, and we made, you know how you can meet somebody and just kind of fall in love in a second. You know, it's like, okay, it didn't take a year to establish a bridge. We built that bridge pretty strong. You could drive a truck over it, built it in about, I don't know, 54 minutes or something. But I, I've been filled with this kind of urgency, which I've felt several times in my life before. Um, I'm 63 years old now, so I've certainly had it when I was 16 and 22 and first started having kids in my late 20s. And I feel this, uh, I guess to call it a, com a compulsion is is a pretty close term to to create. It's almost like, in a, in, and I hope this doesn't sound the least bit morbid because I don't feel that it is at all. But uh, I have a, a sudden sort of cognizance, however vague it could be, about the end, you know, about the clock stopping and, you know, then you won't have a chance to create. 
and I hope it's in, you know, 120 years, as they say in, in my tradition. means should have had 120 years. I don't know why they don't go 121, but they, they don't. For some reason, that's that's enough. That's how I felt today when I woke up at, you know, 5 a.m. And I kind of tried not to rustle so much that I'd wake my wife up and stayed in bed for another half hour. And then I had to get out. So it could be a kind of mania. I've never been diagnosed with that. But it does feel very uplifting, energetic. I have to draw and paint and connect with people by phone, my children, my friends. I have a whole list of people that I pray for. Um, we can get into the theological stuff in a minute, but are that are sick. And, and maybe that, and some of them are my very close friends, and they're not dealing with a skin knee. So that compels me in a way too, just this idea of time being measured which it is. It's not a it's not a thought that's lacking in veracity. It's just one that certainly I don't think about all the time. It's just in the background there. It's somehow snuck to the foreground. So that's kind of what's on my mind today. Dinner dinner is also on my mind, like what, what I'm gonna make. I have to run it past my wife and because what do you want to have for dinner if I name a few things and I could see on her face, no, nah, that's not happening. But I'll narrow it down to something that she likes too. This urgency that you're talking about, I'm sure other people listening have felt it. I've felt it myself. You said you've noticed the, the intensity of it a few times in your life, younger times, now you're in your 60s. Do you have a sense of the difference in the feelings you had? Does the urgency you have now have a different personality or characteristic than, say, maybe the younger one did? And how would you compare those? Yeah, it's a really good question. I hadn't quite thought about it in that way till this very moment. I mean, I guess when when you hit your 60s, or I don't know when that time is, really what it is that you've set out to do, you, you become that already. Now, it doesn't preclude changing and, you know, metamorphosing into a, a higher level or, God forbid, a lower level. But I think back to when I was... 17 my dad had had been diagnosed with lymphoma and my dad was somebody that i had no ambivalence about i loved him very much i think we talked about that a little bit when we spoke last time and the urgency was fueled like i have to get somewhere with my music i have to get somewhere there was something that was distressing not only about him being sick but generally about that type of urgency where i felt that i would be somehow in some some trouble if i didn't get somewhere and now not that that feeling is completely gone but it's a much calmer feeling it's it's like i've opened up to a bigger sky and the things that i'm compelled to do are more joyous in a way without the sort of accompanying distress feelings. It strikes me that the urgency that you might have now has elements of urgency in it, and yet it's an urgency that's also seasoned with a bit of uh, ease, would you say? Yeah, I think so. I mean, 
I used to wonder if I didn't have this urgency, if I didn't have this this pushing, this seizing me to do something, would I just sit there and eat Cheetos and watch, you know, reruns of Three's Company? And it's somewhat relieving now that I think about it to see that the elimination of, let's say, the darker side of that urgency hasn't thwarted my creativity, if you want to use that word. I'm sometimes hesitant to do so, but it's made things more possible. It's made me better able to embrace more things in a deeper way, broader and deeper at the same time. You're touching a bit on prayer, and you mentioned you pray for your friends, and you have a group of friends who are in need of prayer. Talk a bit about how prayer works for you. I've always wondered about it. I pray not so much formally. I lift up my intentions and assume that something will pick it up and carry it across the the waves. <laughs> Tell me about your view of prayer. And I know from talking to you before, it's an important part of your life, and it has been for a long time. How does it work for you? And also, prayer goes both ways. When you pray, do you feel a healing as much as you hope for the people that you're praying for? Well, these are all good questions. So I'm going to try not to sound pedantic or in any way sort of encouraging people to do as I do. So let's get that set from the outset. It's not my intention whatsoever. On that note, not to digress too much, but part of maturation for me is a very obvious thing, which is the way I see the world is not the way everyone else sees it. It seems like, well, that's self-evident, but it hit me personally not long ago. I mean, obviously, I could imagine people have different ways of looking at the world. The way that people see flowers or taste cayenne pepper, it's all different. I mean, and one shouldn't assume, this is my my prelude, my long-winded caveat before I jump into prayer, we don't know how people think, and it would behoove me to be really attentive to that. I see the world as being willed into existence at every moment. This sounds strange, you know, I do stop at red lights and I, you know, go to the doctor and I have fairly good hygiene. So I'm going to sound a bit like a madman to certain people. And But I, I feel I have a sort of non-provable, non-empirical cognizance of the world being willed into existence at all times. And were this, whatever you want to call it, this intelligence, I don't know, there is no word. I'd, I'd, I'd just like to leave a blank for it. Let's just call it blank for a second. Uh, were that blank to stop willing everything from a piece of dog on the street to the deepest reaches of the galaxies, it, everything, space itself, time, everything, everything would kind of cease just as when we wake up and our dreams go away, we can scarcely remember them. And so prayer, for me, I guess the basis of it is 
trying and it's not like I have this great sense of gratitude. It's not like I know any great thing. The best I can say is that I, I'm striving for gratitude. My default is ingratitude. What more can I get? But I do know that that's a, a function of my thinking that needs to change. And I guess when you go back to just what we we're talking about before, this compulsion to create, the less ingratitude I have, the more openness there is. Or I can put it in a positive way, the more I see the possibilities and, and the wonder, I guess that's a chief word. And it's a chief word, in at least in prayer, which is just an English word. I could just use blah, 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 blah. Sometimes these words that we say, like, blah, 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 we could have a whole discussion like that. It might have more meaning. It's trying to achieve, at least for me, a sense of wonder, which I know is missing for me. Not that I have to climb a mountain or see a rainbow. I should be seeing it when I'm looking at my fingernails. And maybe I have for a millionth of a second once. I'm trying to get that back with everything I do. That's what prayer means to me. I'm thinking about prayer and how so often when people talk about prayer, they discount it as mm. if who am I to pray? Yeah. I wonder if prayer might be the knock on the door to open us into this immense collective of energy. And so the prayer that I make, I pray that someone has the burden lifted. I pray that my dear friend in some faraway state has a joyous day. Knock on the door, say the prayer, and I enter this arena and my prayer expands to include all the prayers that have ever been uttered from the beginning of time. Mm, it's a really beautiful thought. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Does it ever hit you to wonder about to whom or what you're beseeching? No, I never think about that. And the reason why, that's not necessary. Mm. I can't beseech the universe. I don't have to pray to some entity. I don't have to give it a name. I just know that there's a functionality that happens forever. Yeah. And I am in that functionality. So in a sense, if I am that included in this proposition that we're talking about, I am as much a part of it as anything else. So in a sense, when I am praying, I am praying to you to myself, and to the entire proposition. I become all that there is because we're all included in that totality. And when I think about prayer like that, a lot of those questions that maybe I asked when I was younger, oh, gee, well, who do I pray to? Does it really work? Do I have enough power? Who am I to do all of that? They're off the table. I just simply mm -hmm. offer it up and think, well, it's above my pay grade anyway. I'm never going to figure it out, but I just have to assume it works. And I've seen 
often when I have lifted up my best wishes to another person, I certainly feel good. And I believe they do too. And they feel it. Here we are to creativity. Here we are to, to, to making music, to making art, to making lives. It reminds me, there's a barber shop in Santa Monica where I live that looks like a place out of time. It's in Santa Monica. It's on Broadway. I forget what it's called. They always have those funny names like the clip joint or something like that. And it, it's a completely African-American barbershop, just like you'd see in a movie. It's almost like a dream. And I, I go in there once in a while. And the first time I went in there, I mean, it was, you know, BET on the TV. It was Wilson Pickett playing over the speakers. It was pictures of Obama everywhere. And I, and there was a lot of guys just hanging around. I felt at home. I walk in, I'm this Jew. And, you know, I had my guitar case with me because I was doing something near there. And and I'm getting a haircut. And the guy who cuts my hair, he's the owner of the clip joint. His name is Xavier. I see on, on the wall, you know, you can't help but just look around when you're getting your haircut. He has this oncological certificate, like he'd gone through some some serious treatments. He's a big guy, you know, and, you know, and probably about eight guys in there. And after the haircut, see, I wear this yarmulke. It's a Jewish thing called a kippah. You've probably seen him before. And he knew what they were. He knew the Jewish word, which is yarmulke, which means, you know, the English translations are never good. It means awe of heaven. That's what it means, that you should, you should engender with each step a certain awe, basically what we're just talking about now, that, that we shouldn't take everything for granted. So... Xavier knew what this was, and he said to me, as though I was somebody who could do this for him, he said, oh, you know, man, could you, uh, could you give me a blessing? And he wasn't joking, and I wasn't joking. And I put my hands on his head, and I just, I just poured it out. And I guess we were, like, both tearing up. It was real. And, and now... I knew that he'd had health problems and talking about his family. And it's one of those singular moments you just never forget. And all of a sudden, everyone in the barber shop was coming up to me. I felt like I was like Jacob or Moses or something, laying hands on everybody. But it wasn't a joke. And what I learned from that experience, whether one only sees it as a as a loving gesture between two people or there's some entity that's going to change things it doesn't really matter we're embarrassed to use the power of prayer i'm not that embarrassed you know i've done it at a show i said look i know this might sound nuts i said look i just like you guys a lot let me give this for you and it wasn't a joke the reason that people come to hear music in my opinion it's a stand-in for what people aren't getting at church or synagogue or other places. If it's done right, it makes some of your temporal self fade away. And you become, not that you become more spiritual, but the curtains are lifted a little bit off whatever is the animating property of this meat sack that we carry around. 
And when somebody can do that well, that's why they buy a ticket. That's why they clap. That's why they dance. That's why they cry. They are now not in a rote form of living, nor am I. I think I have to facilitate that if I'm on stage or whatever. I got to be the first one to really get there and not fake it. So all that ties into prayer for me. I'm thinking of the comment you made earlier about the universe or God or the great creator, however we want to call it, the blah, blah, what name did you give it? Some <laughs> blah. The blah name. You're talking about willed into existence. And I'm wondering, as I listen to you describe the scene in the barbershop and then the scene playing on the big stages, and I know that I'd love to talk have you talk a bit about your musical career because I know you've been doing that professionally for a long, long time. When we decide as human beings, and this probably I think might belong to all of us, when we decide to give the blessing mm. or when you decide, okay, I've got this huge audience. I'm going to turn the mic down, pull back, and I'm going to give the whole room a blessing. Are we participating in a willing of existence are we willing ourselves into a new existence by giving these blessings and do we all have the power to do that and are we drawing our energy from that grand will that perpetuates infinity well i mean look i think you've articulated it really well i i have to say i i concur with that you know some people would ask well does the blah, blah, whatever you want to call it, possess a will. Well, since will is a characteristic that we all have, will is a very mysterious thing. You know, why we are drawn to certain people, why we are drawn to certain foods, to certain sleeping positions. I mean, they're very complex. And it, it may be one of our most complex sort of drives, going back to the word compulsions, that we, I love mint chip ice cream for some reason. My wife knows it and she's bought me some. I'm like, damn, you really know me. That's nice. She goes, yeah, you love mint chip. But let's say the creator, capital C or whatever you want to, obviously, if somebody creates something on a human level, let's say, they must know something about it. If somebody you know creates a, a complicated computer program, they're putting their subjective ideas into it. They can't avoid it. They have a will toward a certain outcome. So it seems to me difficult to imagine that as we pray in this way that you're talking about, or whatever way, because you know, prayer is very mysterious. It's not definable. It's not right or wrong. It's You can't grab it, can't hold it. Um, it seems challenging for me to believe that a creator wouldn't have a will. Then the question goes further, well, how did that will become articulated? Many people feel that these are innate things in us. For example, don't murder you know, don't steal. Well, those are those are innate ideas that humankind would have conceived of at any rate. Really see that as innate characteristic. 
the innate characteristic in a human being, one which we, if we want to grow, we need to sublimate within ourselves, this idea of taking for ourselves, which is even in a sort of a small way, might be considered a microcosm of, of a greater degree of violence. This idea of me first, butting in line, wanting, grabbing, tearing. If you had to divide humankind into a kind of a duality, which I do, at least for myself, I can recognize that I have these animal urges. Some of them are good. If not, I probably would never build a house, you know, over a roof or I wouldn't sire children. I mean, and some of them are very egregious. Jealousy, self-involvement you know, to an overreaching degree. And then you have this other sort of higher side. Now, what is that? Call it your spiritual side. Some call it a godly characteristic, you know, the cartoons with the devil on the shoulder and the spirit on the other. I mean, it's a very simplistic depiction. I would venture to say most people can see within themselves a kind of duality, however it's depicted. I'd be curious to know if that's something that you've thought about. I've thought a fair amount about that, and I certainly have that duality. I go back and forth between the criminal mind and the godlike mind. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, here I am swinging back and forth. I am wondering about this idea of the animal. I have come around to thinking that I am just an animal, like all the rest of the animals in the world, a human animal. I have my own nature. I have my own range of thoughts, my desires, the, the negative and the positive, all the things that we give value to. I wonder, could that range that we all experience, and when we look at the human population, we all practice across the spectrum. From the mm -hmm. worst to the best, to the, yeah. to the most devilish, nastiest, can't even imagine it situation to, oh, the most divine. Is that just our nature in the same way that you might find the peregrine falcon diving out of the sky or the spider that I'm happily sharing my space with right now on the window over there mm. having its life? And it seems pretty smart, that spider. So I see it as maybe a teacher. I go over and look at it and think, well, what do you have to say today? Mm -hmm. Do you think our range is just simply part of what gives us our place here on earth? Or is it something different, more well, divine, sets us apart? I think, and, you know, just I surmise nothing I say, by the way, is data-driven, and I don't necessarily always believe in the data, so sometimes I do. If I'm flying a plane, I hope they've studied the data. But in, in questions like these, I, I don't think it's necessarily always relevant. I think that most animals work on instinct. The spider is spinning that web. In a sense, animals can't do evil, and maybe that's the thing that distinguishes humans from animals, not so much that they don't do good, but they don't really do bad. Defining bad as you know, good and evil, now we're getting into a, a difficult conversation there, but the spider is spinning a web, uh, the fly 
probably would be displeased by getting caught in it and having its blood sucked out and become this desiccated shell. But it's neither, in my opinion, good nor bad. It just is. And I think the thing that sets a human being apart is a consciousness about our own duality, our propensity for great evil and great good. And, and what is good is this sense of letting go of a self-serving nature to serve others. And I guess we're always swinging on that pendulum. And as we get older, you can almost see, they say that when a person gets older, you can see the face now betrays who they really are. Because, you know, when somebody's 22 years old, they're looking great. But if you're filled with malevolence or anger, it shows on your face. And if you're filled with gratitude and joy, it shows on your face. And there's no hiding it anymore. <laughs> this is funny. Going back to the beginning, what compels me as a form of creation isn't just making music or art so much as a retooling of my own duality so that I will find myself more often in this giving zone. I know you draw a great deal of strength from your faith. Can you reflect on how your faith informs the way you keep your balance regarding this duality? Yeah, well, one is the assumption that I have any balance at all. Well, let's I, hope so. No, no, no. You know what? I don't, I don't think that I'm particularly well-balanced. I try my best. That would be for others to judge. There's a word in, in Hebrew. It's called bitachon. It's a form of faith. There's all sorts of words for faith in the Hebrew language just like there's words for snow in the Inuit language. So the two words that come to mind, one is emuna, which means I have a faith or a trust that everything's going to work out well. It's a high, high level. The second level of faith, which is called bitachon, which sometimes if you go to Israel and they're guarding the door against a terrorist attack, they have on the back of their jacket, bitachon. They're not thinking of it in such a spiritual way. They're thinking of it like security force. Bitachon means that right now, no matter what's happening, you could imagine there's a range of times that we're to hold the faith that right now is good. This is not only leading to good, but right now you're getting exactly what you need. There's a range because God forbid there's so many things that it would be seemingly impossible to, to carry, at least for me, to carry this pitachon. But for smaller things, the plane's late, for example, or the sky's cloudy, or my shoulder hurts, things that might have just kind of made my day a little dark, shadowed. And I would bring that little piece of shadow to everyone else, just a little bit. It's made it easier to push that stuff away. The package didn't come on time. The amount of money I thought I would get for this deal didn't 
match my expectations. It takes a great deal for me of intellectual energy. There's this visceral feeling of disappointment. And it's something that I would just let carry me away. And now this sense of bitachon is making me think, well, you know, this blah, blah has a will, as we go back to, that I should be experiencing this right now for reasons completely unknowable. Now, my sister got killed in a car accident about 23 years ago. That would have been real hard for me to do at that time. It would probably have been perverse in some way. And people ask me, well, do you still believe in God now that that happened? I don't think they were challenging me as much as they really wanted to know. And I thought, well, you know, the, the moon is still hanging in space. You know, the birds are still flying. I'm moving my hand. Of course, I believe in God. But I was really angry. And my prayers were sort of said like a person throwing a gift from behind. You know, it was all done with a little bit of anger. Until really one day, all these things happen in one moment, these little changes that we get. You know, the closer we can get to examining the minutiae, the better. I was sitting on my bed, and I was just thinking about, well, let's say there is a creator who obviously created sorrow and created my sister Susie, who is, by all accounts, a really wonderful person. Might the sorrow of God or blah, blah, be an infinite kind of sorrow? And I started to feel sorry for God, for having to bear the weight of that kind of sorrow. Now, that came four years after she died, but it came nonetheless. And I never want to be tested like that again. But that's where I got to. And thinking, why wouldn't sorrow be infinite? And why wouldn't grief be infinite? And joy and love and all the rest all, be all infinite? Of, right. Especially by a, a creator that is infinite. And it's not an entity because an entity already describes a confined something, something that you can embrace intellectually or hold in your hand or read about. One thing I like about the idea of the creator, framing that around the notion of infinity, having mm -hmm. been here with us forever, the creator is constantly creating. It's the entire proposition right, creating. Right. It, it contains exactly us. It. And when you think about that and you think about the idea that we have the privilege of being remotely aware that we're part of this, that's a, that's a joy that warms me as we talk about this. It's really, yeah, really it beautiful proposition. You're giving me goosebumps from what you're saying. I get it. If you're reading the news and you're listening to the news on TV, and, and that's part of your daily ritual, I'm not, you know, I guess I am proffering some advice here, and I apologize for it. My mom was at my house about a month ago. She's 90 years old. And we never had the news on. It's like ever. And she wanted, you know, whatever it was, CNN. And I had to figure out how to get it on our Roku system. And I got it. And she just, I could see her. She was getting so depressed. She goes, oh, 
you know, whatever was going on, I said, Mom, let's just for a second shut off the TV because I can see you're really upset. She doesn't like me bossing her around, I can tell you that much. I said, look outside. There's two hummingbirds around the fountain. You're here with your hopefully favorite son, you know, <laughs> and we've just eaten a wonderful breakfast. And the sun is starting to break through, you know, the marine layer here. It's, it's not depressing. It's beautiful right now. You got to watch out, I think, for these technologies and the people behind them. I don't think they're nefarious, but they're just trying to put food on their table. But some of the things that they do, it's, it's, it's like having a sewer pipe come into your home with raw sewage. Why would you do that? You know, unless it was critical, there was some information that you needed right now that was very important that you could endure the confusion and depression that would come alongside it. I'm curious, framing this conversation with all of these wonderful ideas, can we go a little further? And would you bring some of your musical passion into this? Hmm. In music, in the churches, it's a form of worship. I imagine you feel the same way. Tell me a bit about how your musical career has informed your sense of place in the universe. Yeah, well, you have some beautiful questions, Navi. I appreciate it. One thing it's done, it's created this incredible intimacy for me, it particularly, let's say I'm just imagining I'm in, on stage with my band. I have different musicians that I play with, all of whom I prerequisite, aside from being able to be killer players, that I have to like them, I have to love them. Making music, which is essentially, if you know, if you think about it, you're not playing guitar or the flute or the drum you're beating or blowing or strumming on a wave shaper. And the wave is really air waves that go into our ears. And by a, essentially a miraculous process, we're able to hear, which just means we have this cognition about these air waves, which is informing us in this miraculous way about what's going on. So the bass creates slow waves the drums can create slow and sharp waves, all these different waves, and they make people feel things. They make people very sad sometimes. I just somebody sent me this article about the value of sad songs, which I've always been trying to express to people that they bring people together in that sort of cathartic way. I have a good handful of really sad songs. But the result of them is beautiful. It brings people together. They can share one of the profound aspects of living, which is sorrow. Now, of course, music, when it's used to illustrate beauty or joy, if you've ever been outside or like in New Orleans and I was at some street corner and there was a club, you could hardly hear, it was a big picture window. You couldn't really hear the music. But you see all these people moving, business people and like people, professional people with 
clean underarms and shoes. If you if you extracted the music, they they were moving like children with the music, not only under the guise of music, it would allow them, it was socially acceptable, but there's something about the music that makes people become childlike. To have access not only to listen to music, but to play music and to create music on stage with some of your best friends. I mean, that's for me, certainly one of the best parts of my life. And I'm singing songs that might have meant something to me at one time and like notes in a journal, they they continue to do so. When when you play music, how quickly do you revert to a childlike sensibility while you still carry all your professional experience to the stage? Are you a child or are you, you know, a combination? Yeah, you know, you kind of revert back and forth a little bit. It's just like love. How many days of purity can you maintain? If you're in love, you have the opportunity to seize those moments of love, and those moments are indelible. And so when I'm on stage, I think I get into the mode right away when I walk. There's a transformation in me, and maybe you feel the same way. Ladies and gentlemen, it's James Nave. And that part of you that isn't around when, you know, I'm in my pajamas making scrambled eggs, it comes to the fore, I'm, and I welcome it. It's a facet of me that just doesn't appear very often, except when I'm on stage. Even now, this is a kind of a performance because we know we're going to, people will hear it. So it's coming out to some degree. But right when I come out, that's when it happens. There's a sense of freedom. I feel more free now I than I probably did when I was a kid. I wonder if that sensibility, and I have felt it, welcome to the stage, you walk out, you're playing, you walk out and you look at your, your audience, you have this huge crowd, and then this thing happens. I would like to think that is part of my soul, the essence of me, just simply connecting to that universal outlet, if you will. Yeah. I Plug in and, and here we in. go. Here we go. Yeah. This is an odd word to bring to this, but there's a, I feel a sense of responsibility. It doesn't detract from this childlike thing at all, but just like when I was giving that blessing to Xavier, well, he asked for it, and I said I would give him that, and I felt plugged in then too, and there was a responsibility to take it seriously, number one. I'm serious about going up there, even though the shows are really sometimes very funny, although I'm not being very funny right now. But I have a responsibility to anyone that left their domicile to come somewhere in the evening, which is already hard to do, to make sure that I use all the powers within me to make myself and, and the audience have a transcendent experience and you know to one degree or another and i think we're successful at that almost uniformly and when you feel that success do you draw a great deal of energy from the audience as they respond 
what's that relationship? I've often thought when I see a great show or hear a beautiful performance uh, or, or even see a really terrific movie, I forget that the person who's presenting it to me is there. And I think I'm the one that's on stage. It almost transports me yeah. out of the audience and puts me there side by side with the presenter, in this case, you. And then after the show's over and I, I clap, I give the presenter, the musician, full credit for allowing me to be them for a little while. Man, you, you, you know it so well. It's sort of like you don't want people watching you. That isn't the goal. That's not what you're responsible for. And that's something I learned over time. I mean, I've been doing this since I was 13 years old. You don't want to perform for them as much as you want to give them license and permission to feel things within themselves. You almost want to be a bystander, facilitator, if you will. And I know, you know, Bruce Springsteen knows this same thing, you know, even if it's well rehearsed and all that, which it is. My stuff tends to be very improvisational, but it's a knowledge that you have a certain gift or something that you developed. And because they've showed up, it doesn't even matter that, that they paid for the ticket, that's secondary. They showed up and they know within seconds whether you can do the job or are you doing it for self-aggrandizement before we go on stage we don't do one of these like warm-ups or anything and we're gonna get them we're gonna kill them just like we nod at each other and we nod at the fraternity the sorority and just sort of like let's do it let's give it it's very subtle it's just a look like here we go on that note, my friend, we are almost to the top of our hour, hmm. how fast it goes. I'm wondering if you might close with a few words that one might call a blessing. Send us out with something lovely. Yeah, I'll, I'll try my best. I mean, I would bless everyone who's listening or in proximity to those who are listening, first of all, with perfect health, that they be strong, that their bodies are healthy, that they're feeling a sense of their own aliveness. They're not dealing with incapacities of a physical sense. I bless them that they will be brave and courageous enough to show their love to other people and to receive the love that the other people are eager to bring, but perhaps fearful of doing so. I bless people that their aspirations for good, the things that they want to achieve, that they have the courage to start making them manifest and the blessing of opening up the vessels for success in those areas. And that they walk in stride with a sense of wonder about their lives. And every moment becomes precious. Every moment becomes a prayer. Peter, thank you for spending this time with us. I really, really do appreciate it. Nave, 
You just bring it out. I knew you'd do it. <laughs> you put me in the mood. It's it's it is my pleasure, my friend. All right. Well, go on and have a good day. Let's definitely catch up. And uh, you look good in headphones, man. Thank you very much. So there you go, my friends. My conversation with Peter Himmelman. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed participating in it. As you now know, Peter is a musician, and I would like now to play one of his tunes for you. He sent the tune to me and said, yeah, please, play it on air. So here's Can't Drag Myself Away by Peter Himmelman. The mother offers warmth The father shines his light The wind whispers through the clouds Falcons take to flight The carpenter builds a home The doctor kills the ill The wolf howls out a love song The soldier takes the hill And I Can't drag myself away from this Can't drag myself away Drag myself away. Repentance seeks forgiveness. The farmer prays for the seed. The teacher awakens memory. The angel blesses those in need. And I can't drag myself away. Drag myself away. Can't drag myself away. Not for a moment, not for a moment, not for the slightest division of time. The singer stirs the unbeliever. The grave digger shovels clay. Does the spirit
Drag Myself Away by Peter Himmelman. If you're interested in more of Peter's music, as well as finding out more about all of the things he does in the world of creativity and in the world of business, you can visit PeterHimmelman.com. Himmelman is spelled H-I-M-M-E-L-M-A-N, PeterHimmelman.com. And continuing on the theme of Can't Tear Myself Away, I'd like to close our time together with a poem from my book, 100 Days, which is a poetic memoir about recovering from surgery. I wrote 100 poems in 100 days. This is poem number 56, When Things Fall Apart. Yesterday afternoon, I walked to Kevin Cannon's house at the end of Marotta Lane. Kevin was clipping weeds in his yard. He smiled swatted his hat on his trousers, and pointed to the front door of his hundred-year-old adobe. I settled into a comfortable chair at his kitchen table. Kevin poured boiling water over fresh ground coffee into his silver French press. You had a rough time of it this spring. How's it going now? He asked. I'm happy to report I'm back on my feet, I told him. We cupped our mugs and talked about how when things fall apart, Interrupted lives make new forms. Do you want a quick art show? Kevin nodded toward the hall that bridged into his studio. We ducked into a room full of soft tables sculpted from leather, brown globes, and carved akimbo dancers without heads. I rubbed the objects like I rubbed my skin. When you find the right place to work, you can stay for the rest of your life. There's no reason to go anywhere. Kevin said, while handing me a white elk bone carved into a small fish hook with a razor-sharp point. There's a question that follows this poem. Is it true when you find the right place to work, you can stay for the rest of your life? Do you agree or disagree? For the record, I agree with Kevin. And on that note, I'd like to say thank you ever so much for listening to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVMLP, Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com, if you're interested in more of Walter's music. PeterHemmelman.com, once again, if you're interested in learning more about Peter's music and the work he does in the world. And if you'd like to reach out to me, Nave, at JamesNave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. Thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVM-FM on Wall Street in downtown Asheville. We couldn't do it without you. And Robin Collier in house. thank you for airing the show as well. And we're sponsored by the Imaginative Storm Writing Project. If you're interested in learning how to be a better writer, you can always visit imaginativestorm.com and there you will find plenty of tips on how to go about putting that pen on the page. So for now, like I said, thank you ever so much for tuning in. I really do appreciate it. And hey, I hope you tune in again sometime soon. And until then... I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.